And I noticed that conservatives were moving to the right politically and that apolitical folks were becoming politicized. I used to joke that the best recruiter for the right on campus is the left. Join the best in the movement. It's Conservative Conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Johnny Burtka and Tom Saruth. Today, we have a special episode of the podcast where we are joined by Adam Hoffman, who's a senior at Princeton studying political theory and who's originally from Houston, Texas. He has served as the president of the College Republicans at Princeton, the Conservative Debate Society, and the Campus Conservative Journal. Adam is also involved in Princeton's religious life and the entrepreneurship community. Great to have you with us, Adam. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. And, and like I said earlier, appreciate all the good work that, that ISI does. So, so again, thanks. Thanks so much for that shout out, Adam. And before we begin our formal interview, I'd like to thank you all for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you'd like to join us in fulfilling that mission, be sure to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcast to help us reach more listeners like yourself. Well, Adam, congratulations on your piece in the New York Times this week. Uh, It had the provocative title, My Liberal Campus is Pushing Free Thinkers to the Right. I'm, you know, curious, how did this article first come about and how did you end up pitching it and getting it published uh, in the New York Times? Oh, well, sure. And and just one more time, thanks again for having me. So the article came about because I'd recognized this trend over the course of my four years, four years at Princeton. I'm a senior now, like Tom introduced, I've served in leadership roles in conservative organizations on campus, College Republicans, Clio, our debate society, the Tory, the Campus Journal. And I noticed that conservatives were moving to the right politically and that apolitical folks were becoming politicized. I used to joke that the best recruiter for the right on campus is the left. So what, what I saw happen is that apolitical people who would otherwise not encounter politics, would otherwise not think about politics, would come up on these moments, I call them political checkpoints, in the, in the article where they'd be forced to take a position and often, or exclusively really, take a position on the left. What does that mean? Classes begin with preferred pronouns, where everyone needs to voice their pronouns Everyone needs to voice an affirmation of gender ideology. Similarly, land acknowledgments, sort of acknowledging land as belonging to a Native American tribe. So, so for someone like, say, my dad, who's apolitical, he gets up in the morning, he goes to work, he comes home, he doesn't encounter politics at all. But on the college campus, you're forced to encounter politics and you're forced actually to conform to a particular side, right? You're forced to voice the support of, of the left. So I, th- I think that's been the case for apolitical students. And then for moderately conservative students, there's also this effect where conservatives feel alien. And that means that wherever they look, they, I, I mean, something as simple as the aesthetics on our student center. There are quotes plastered on all the walls from progressives. They can't look up and see a conservative. And I think this has an alienating experience that tends, that results in conservatives tending then to the right. Also, 
I think you have moderate conservatives that will publish milquetoast opinions, say on affirmative action, say on policing. They get canceled and then they begin, as I put it for one friend of mine in the, in the article, a process of thinking for themselves. So in both cases, for these eight political students, for these students that arrive on the moderate right on campus, they really lose faith in the institutions. They lose faith in places like Princeton. And that, that has effect on their politics too. So that, that's the phenomenon that I recognized over the course of my four years and that I tried to capture in the article. And was the New York Times pretty open to, to the idea or how, how did that come about? Yeah, so the New York Times was surprisingly receptive to this idea. <laughs> and, and like you said, it has sort of this provocative, provocative title, which the New York Times chose, but I was pleasantly surprised by. <laughs> That's great. Tom, I'm wondering if you might be able to jump in because I know a lot of what Adam's saying mirrors your own experience at Boston College and your kind of conservative journey. Did you come into college, Tom, as a conservative or how did that evolution take place? Yeah, I was a conservative, some sort of libertarian. That's the the safe sort of conservative because you don't push too hard. But Adam, I just seconding what Johnny just said is my experience tracks pretty perfectly onto your article. So thank you for writing it. I, I went to Boston College and I sort of went in sort of milk toast libertarian who had milk toast opinions on affirmative action or policing. And I came out incredibly agitated and frustrated with my own alma mater, who apparently now, and there's a Fox News article out today, is putting hosting furry events in college classrooms at Boston College, a Catholic university. But it's that sort of like ridiculous, hyper-woke sort of phenomenon that does drive people insane. And I know that over the course of my four years, I was in college Republicans all four years. I had the honor of being the president my senior year. There was a decidedly rightward shift that happened. And I don't think that's just because I was at the helm. That was a noticeable shift amongst the entire group was just sort of paying attention or seeing, oh, wow, actually, this university doesn't really seem to represent me in any way or and seems actually in many ways to be actively hostile. But actually, I wonder, I'd love to hear more from your own campus, Adam, some of the progressive elements at play, whether that's the student body or the administration. You know, to, to that question, it's sort of like where to begin. <laughs> and I, I, I borrow this word from the left, systemic. I think there's systemic progressivism on campus. I mean, from, from the bottom to the top. So what we see is these diversity, equity, and training programs sponsored by the university, which endorse, I mean, extreme progressive positions and present present them as the truth. These are not ideas that are submitted in a classroom for discussion, in a seminar. These are contestable ideas that are taught and instructed as fact. I, you know, there, there are all sorts of fellowships and resources offered exclusively to left-wing students, to left-wing programs. In my own experience, I've brought right-wing speakers to campus. I haven't been able to get funding from the university departments while actually in one case, I wasn't able to get funding. And then the departments turned around and funded a counter event to, to my own. So it's really from, from the bottom, from the bottom to the top, there's just really a, a bias towards progressivism, but also an exclusion, not just a bias, but an exclusion of conservatives, conservative views, conservative students. Adam, you, you mentioned at the beginning of the piece, you know, you cited Ronald Reagan, you know, and, and some of the other kind of Edmund Burke, sort of more conventional 
conservative icons. And you sort of hinted that perhaps they reflected or conservatives on campus a few years back reflected more establishment views. I'm wondering if you could, uh, you know, describe perhaps, you know, in terms of ideologically speaking, you know, who are some of the people that conservatives on your campus look up to? How would you describe in terms of where they fall on the conservative spectrum, you know, the views of, of most of the people that, let's say, run run in your circles or that are reacting against where the left is at? And do you find that concerning? Because you talked about, you know, the left is creating firebrands, or is that encouraging to you? I'm curious what what your thoughts are. Yeah, so, so maybe I'll pick up on this word of reacting. And I think that one of the criticisms that's frequently levied against the right is that conservatives are just reactionaries. What we're doing on campus or what some conservatives are doing on campus, politicians, the movement, et cetera, are just reactionaries. I'm going to push back on that, right? It seems to me that conservatives are just meeting the challenge where it is, responding to the threat as it is. The threat has changed. So conservatives are going to change how they respond. I don't think that that's reactionary per se. So that, that's, that's kind of point number one here. <laughs> and, and, and point number two is, right, I, I want to be specific that I think that there has been this move to the right politically, but not necessarily policy-wise, not necessarily on the substance. What do I mean by that? Right, so this you know, let's take what I think might be a good case study. You had this college, the New, New College of Florida. I, I'd put my money down that they didn't have a very good free speech culture. It seems to me that Mitt Romney, let's say on one side, and Ron DeSantis on the other side would both be interested in promoting free speech on that campus. Substantively, I think that they're actually at very similar places. But then we get to a question of how do you then address that problem? What are the what are your what what's in your political toolbox? What tactics do you prefer? And I think that's really where we're seeing the shift. For for Mitt Romney, it might be okay a reform here, a reform there. For Ron DeSantis, it's this institution is fundamentally broken. Let me do some sort of hostile takeover, or however we want to call it. So I think that's really, in, it, 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 it's my sense at least, that's really where the shift is happening in political tactic. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And it reminds me of something that Gladden Pappen wrote. He wrote this in a piece in American Affairs a number of years ago. And he says, one of the differences between the left and the right is not only an ideology, but also of agency. The left is the party that has had agency. And so he's calling for the right, this nor new right coalition to think about that as well, that sort of bifurcation. And now the new right, I would agree with you definitely, is taking on a more active role and saying, well, actually, we can do things too. That's not just a matter of having the right ideas, but also to put those into action. But so is that maybe is that what you mean when you talk about in the piece as we're pushing people further right? Is it more of an agency thing or is it people actively taking on actually different, sub, different, substantively different visions of the good as well? And you can think of some more niche sub-factions that have emerged in the last six or seven years during the, the political alignment, uh, realignment on the right. So I'm wondering if what, you, what your take on the sort of realignment is and if that's what you mean with, in terms of how the colleges are pushing students further right. So I think, I think you're seeing both, both phenomena. I think apolitical students, right, again, this language of a process of learning to think for yourself, 
beginning to question one orthodoxy for a lot of folks I know that was COVID. COVID kind of provoked them to question the authorities, question what they've been told, have a certain distrust. And once they've once they started questioning, say COVID, then they began questioning all, all, all sorts of other all sorts of um, other um, kind of progressive orthodoxies. And then for those who came in on the right, I think there you're really seeing this tactical tactical shift. That's my sense. And to to the second part of that question about the new right, you know, I I haven't really yet come across a good definition of the new right. For some, it's anti-fusionist. For some, it's dismissal of procedural liberalism or, you know, I'm not exactly sure that I can pin it down. So so I guess that's a non-answer to the question. (laughs) Going in a different direction, I'm not sure if you saw the piece, but there was a piece in The New Yorker this week that I think paired well with your piece, and it was called The End of the English Major. And it was talking about how the study of humanities is in, in serious decline on college campuses. They were citing at Harvard, I think the class of 2020, only 70%, sorry, only 7% of students are humanities majors. The rest are, you know, in some STEM related field. It was talking about how, you know, some, some of it was typical, you know, that, that you heard where the humanities sort of are, are embracing almost identity narratives exclusively. Students are actually, are actually not really encountering the primary sources. Some of that's, you know, stuff that we've been familiar with for a long time as conservatives, you know, serving higher education. But I'm curious on this shift to STEM, this shift to statistics, this, this mentality that seems to be taking hold on campuses. And also as, as students look to careers, you know, the vast majority of them, you know, they're going into consulting, they're going into big tech, they're going into finance. And this is, has had a, a commercializing effect on the entire campus life. And I'm, sorry, I'm wondering if you could talk about that and, you know, how does that relate to some of these other, you know, sort of leftist cultural trends on college campuses? Oh, certainly. And that's, that's certainly been something that I've noticed on my campus too. I'll say there's a deep unseriousness that's fallen upon the humanities in college. There's a course titled, I kid you not, at Princeton, a course titled Queer Black BDSM. I mean, there's it's 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 pretty ridiculous, right? <laughs> just 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 on its face, I I conclude the the article by saying the piece by saying that it might actually be in the university's best interest to reform. What do I mean by that? I think society, America in general, is beginning to question the value of at least the humanities in these institutions. And I think at a certain point, America is going to act on that and say, why are we funding these places? Why are their endowments getting the exemptions that they are? I think people are beginning to ask this question. And if the university wants to protect itself, if the university wants to continue to operate as it is, well, I think that they need to, co- they, they need to convince society in America that they're being serious you know, turn back, like you said, to the basics, to the classics, and, and, and that sort of thing. So if you, if you want, so basically, if you want society to think you're valuable and treat you as valuable, start acting valuably. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, in your case at Princeton, Princeton's a university that has an endowment. They could 
they are recession proof. Basically, they could pay each student's tuition in full in perpetuity without, and that's without even dipping into the principal of their endowment. It's just year year over year interest, which is a mind boggling thing. But I was I, one thing I was interested in was, as you mentioned, the end of the piece. Um, it sounds like it sounded like you were maybe making an appeal to the universities. And I'm wondering, this is something I remember hearing from Sam Goldman, who's a professor in the ISI orbit at the honors conference in 2021. He pointed out that a lot of what's actually happening that people seem to maybe misunderstand in their frustration with the universities is that it's not so much a lot of the professors who are incurably woke and who are actively malicious and hostile to conservatives. I mean, I think there's a lot of that, but a lot of it is the way that the administrative bloat and all of the new DEI hires and the way that the administration operates through various programs like student life, student student activities, res life, that that's a lot of where the like what new pushing of the woke agenda on the universities is. But I'm wondering what your take is on that generally. I know for me personally, opposition from the administration to my agenda with the BC Republicans, like banning speakers and not letting us invite people, you know, like very sort of milquetoast figures like, you know, Josh Hammer. Actually, I wouldn't call Josh a milquetoast, but uh, he might be insulted by that. But I mean, they're no, I don't know. They held very like mainstream, normal, common sense positions. But, you know, Josh Hammer, Rachel Bovard, even, you know, Paul Gosar, who's a sitting congressman, was banned. And then anyways, this is not about BC. Despite my frustrations, there's a palpable energy here today. But I'm wondering how you much you think of it. Maybe it's just the student body and the faculty are just very liberal. And that's part of the culture or for it's more being, I guess, what the administrations are doing in particular as sort of part of the, the march through the institutions. Yeah, I no, I, I think that I think that hits the nail on the head. And I'll say something else about a place like a place like Princeton and this this uh, this applies at other institutions, even if it's more intense at Princeton. Malcolm Gladwell wrote this piece calling Princeton the first self-perpetuating machine, I think he titled it. Exactly as you put it, Princeton can continue to exist just off a portion of their interest on the endowment. The effect of that has been and is that Princeton is no longer responsible to anybody or accountable to anybody. Historically, if the university was, if the university needed money, well, at least they'd be accountable to their donors. If they didn't have a $40 billion endowment to sponsor the research that continues to give Princeton the prestige that it has, then they wouldn't, then, then they would need to recruit students. Neither of those things are true for Princeton. Princeton has the endowment that can support the prestige, has the endowment where they don't need to run after donations. They're accountable to nobody. And that lets them prioritize their social justice mission and claims over their education. And I think that's that's what you're seeing here. And I think that's behind a lot of the craziness um, that's gone on um, over the past few years at Princeton and in peer institutions. But to your question more directly about the administrative bloat, you know, I joke with friends, we call these bureaucrats diversocrats, you know, these these uh, bureaucrats whose jobs it is to uh, promote diversity or diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives and all, all that sort of thing. And oh, it's it's gone completely crazy. I mean, as you as you said before, classrooms skew liberal through extracurriculars. Now we need to go through TEI trainings of all sorts. I mean, even kind of. Our, our living spaces, our residential colleges too, 
have even become politicized. My own residential college, Rockefeller College here at Princeton, sponsors a drag show watching. So, I mean, it's it's really everywhere. It's it's really, really crazy. Adam, in, in your own experience, you you know, you chose, you know, voluntarily to go to Princeton. You knew that, you know, a lot of these trends were taking place. You knew kind of what you were getting into. I'm curious. I mean, you seem, you know, smart, resourceful, probably self-taught in a lot of ways. You know, looking at it from, you know, with the advantage of hindsight, you know, are you do you stand by your decision to go to Princeton? And when you think about what you learned there, you know, what's really been the most value to you? Is it what your professors have taught you or is it what you've learned from like-minded peers? Or maybe is the, the bigger value just the career opportunities that you will reap just by virtue of being a Princeton alum, regardless of all the, the craziness that went along with it? <laughs> you know, I think someone can be successful anywhere, no matter where they go to college, no matter if they go to college. With that being said, I'm very thankful to have gone to Princeton, and I think I have gotten a great education here. I think there's a way to do college, way to do Princeton, where you're taking serious classes. You know, we're, we're really blessed to have some great professors here. Robert George, for instance, who I know has, has done work with ISI before, has become a close teacher and mentor to me. And I could continue, continue listing names of other professors who've just taught me such a tremendous amount. And it's true. It's an overwhelmingly progressive campus. It's true that students are not friendly largely to debate that there are these, um, the problem of the diversocrats, as I mentioned, but there's also a really robust conservative community here, small but mighty. And we organize around, you know, a whole lot of, um, uh, you know, different, different clubs on campus. For instance, I'll just mention one of the defining experiences that I've had has been working with and at the Princeton Tory, the conservative journal on campus, um, where I've served as editor-in-chief and publisher. And that has been supported, actually, by, by ISI. Well, then maybe we could ask you a bit more about what your experience has been like working on the staff of the Princeton Tory, which we, we were, Johnny and I were both at the American Politics and Government Summit. And so we had Dr. George there. And then we also had Yoram Hazoni, who one of the co-founders of the Tory way back when. But so what has your experience been like there? And then also, what do you see yourself doing with this, you know, rising career in journalism and political writing? Oh, well, I think that I'm, I'm excited to hear that Professor George and, and Yoram Hazoni were both at, were both at your conference. Um, they're both kind of tr- tremendous in, in their own ways. The Tories provided me with opportunities to grow in my writing, in my learning. It's pushed me to think, to think um, differently, to think, I think, uh, more insightfully. And it's also given me a community, a community of like, like-minded, like-minded people. It's been a home in many ways on campus. So it's been really a tremendous institution that I hope has helped to move the conversation along at Princeton and sort of eventually the hope is it'll it'll uh, come and move the conversation in America too. Adam, before we wrap things up, is there any advice? And I know if someone, a student reading your column, it, it's easy to despair. I know you said you have sort of this small but mighty group. Any other advice for, let's say, a college freshman trying to navigate this that you've gleaned from your experience? I think this is related to the to the piece that a lot of students will come in interested in kind of changing minds, bringing a conservative speaker to 
give the conservative case on campus. I think largely those conservatives are shut down before they even open their mouth. What, what I think I focused on during my time on campus after having learned that is how can we bring speakers, how can we mo- promote programming for what I call in-reach as opposed to outreach to promote the conservatives on campus. Maybe this is some sort of fatalist take that minds can be changed, but I think actually the left changes minds for us and we have a responsibility to help, help to, to promote ourselves when the university isn't here for us. I think we got time for maybe one more. And I was just, I'd love to hear if, as you know, from the student perspective, especially as you pointed to earlier about how it might be in the best interest of colleges and these administrators to try and, I guess, justify their existence. Maybe that's too strong, but what do you think could be done to turn down the heat for these administrators to show that they're in the business of, not only to show, but to actually be in the business of, not whether it's politically not provoking conservatives or trying to have, or sort of causing this further right shift amongst that group or, and then in the opposite direction, spoon feeding liberals, more progressive stuff to make them more liberal and progressive, but uh, to actually like teach the classics and teach well, educate as, you know, along with ISI's mission of educating for liberty and to become a good and virtuous citizen and a good and virtuous person. Uh, I'm wondering how you think that could be done. And also if you do, if you think that would, I guess, pump the brakes on the the phenomenon that you've described and that we're seeing across our campuses. Yeah, I, I think one of the one of the efforts that's now gaining some steam on campus is the the idea of institutional neutrality. And the best language for that, as I've seen it, is from the Calvin report. You know, I, I don't trust at any point the universities are gonna take a stand supporting Shakespeare, let's say, or or supporting students reading Shakespeare. I think the best we can do right now I mean, putting aside, I think, some of the more creative options that you're, you're seeing in other states. But um, at a place like Princeton, I think, I think the best bet right now is to push for institutional neutrality, the adoption of the Calvin Report. And I think, I think that's, that's sort of the best you can do, save any polit- you know, larger political, political options that I think are being discussed right now in a real way. Well, great. We'll end on that note. Thank you again for joining us today, Adam. If people want to continue to view more of your work and follow you to the extent that you want them to follow you, where can they find you? Sure. So I'm, I myself am not very prominent on social media, but I will send everyone to the Princeton Tory where, where I write and where there are other fantastic, fantastic conservative, conservative writers from Princeton. Great. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Adam. And thank you all for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, Please feel free to head over to isi.org resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age Articles, ISI Books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI.